Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I am black-tipped microphone. I'm blue-tipped microphone. <laughs> That's right. We swap out the tips of our microphones. Keep it, keep it fancy. Well, spoiler alert: you're usually blue, but I decided I was going to be blue today. We also uh, have red and yellow. Yeah, windscreens are fun. I don't think we have green though. No, we don't have green. We need to get a green one. Okay, we'll get a green one. Uh, anyway, hello, listeners. Welcome to this episode with Des Mackinoff, who uh, is a, a multi-decade veteran of the Broadway, the Broadway scene, the theater scene, and after talking with him, like. Jillian, you were saying your factoid mind just exploded. Yeah, I love theater history, and I love—I've um, loved Des's shows forever. I was such a Jersey boy, Jersey boys nerd back in the day. Um, I love—I love the trivia and the history, and like some of these little things he was saying while while we were recording. I was just like, "You did what? You were where? Oh my god, that's so cool!" <laughs> um, so I really like hearing hearing the stories from the people who were actually there who made all of these these amazing theater moments happen. And Des is one of those people that without him, we would not have a lot of the the shows and the different styles and things that we have today. Yeah, he's done he's done so much to help change the industry and push things forward. And like he revived the La Jolla Playhouse, which is basically just you know, dying on the vine out on California, and you know we all know. And now it's thriving under the leadership of Chris Ashley. But that does yeah. help to make that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was re- I was so impressed with like how he he talks a lot and he he tells good stories, but he's he always stops and he he interrupted me a lot to make sure that when I was saying you did great stuff, you did this, he was like, well, actually, it wasn't just me; it was this person or this person helped or. Mm-hmm. Like he's so so great about giving credit where credit is due, and I think that says a lot about who he is and his character and why he's been so successful. Yeah, over that the years. longevity—you can't run the world by yourself. It's really great to know that the people who are creating these brilliant things know they need the whole team. It takes a village to mm-hmm. make a show. Yeah. One of the last things I'll say here before we get into it is I'm not going to give it away, but make sure that you listen all the way to the end to hear his one of his answers to um, the standard questions. It blew my mind how he phrased how actors are trapped inside their own instrument. And that's all I want to say because it's so so fascinating to me how he put it. And if I try to repeat it here, it's just going to butcher it. But <laughs> um, yeah, listen, listen to the end. So before we get into it, please take a moment, go to thetheaterpodcast.com slash Patreon and make sure you show your support any way you can. We want to do more episodes for you. We want to make sure that we can bring you more content and more behind the scenes and more ensemble focused episodes and everything. And that all unfortunately requires a little bit of financial support so that we can pay the crew to continue to do this. Yeah. So everyone, please enjoy this episode with Des Mackinoff. Here you go. One, two, three. 
A two-time Tony Award-winning director with 48 Broadway credits across a career spanning more than 37 years, he's directed and or produced so many of the most popular Broadway shows of our lifetimes, some of which include The Grapes of Wrath, The Secret Garden, Guys and Dolls, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, 1776, Footloose, You're in Town, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Into the Woods, Matilda the Musical, A Bronx Tale, Groundhog Day, Summer the Donna Summer Musical, and of course, Big River and Jersey Boys, for which he won his two Tonys, and he is now nominated for a 2019 Tony Award for directing Ain't Too Proud, which is also up for Best Musical. Des McEnough, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is quite a bio. You know, I have to just, uh, though, uh, you know, qualify that um, in in that I, I'm I, I'm I'm a Dodger. Uh, we started. Uh, uh, it was originally called Dodger Theater in 1978, and uh, I, with the with my my friends and uh, uh, Michael David, uh, the, the producer, is is one of them. And because of that, my name appears on all Dodger productions. <clears throat> and um, I, I just want to say that uh, a lot of the productions you named, uh, you know, where I've been theoretically involved as a producer. I, I've had almost nothing to do with them at all. I've, I've, uh, oh, really? I've, I've shown up opening night. So um, shows like, uh, uh, you know, How to Succeed and Tommy and Big River and, uh, and, and Jersey Boys, you know, these are shows that I directed. So I'm very, very involved in those shows and, and do take uh, uh, some credit and some blame for uh, each and every one of them. But the the other shows uh, that you know really they're produced by my partners, and in some cases I I may have come in to help, mm -hmm. and uh, and and I've always been supportive. But uh, I it, they're they're kind of productions that I've I've uh, uh, been involved uh, with at sort of arm's length. So to, to, so or, or that makes me sound as old as Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> I have run a couple of theaters. Uh, La Jolla Playhouse mm -hmm. and uh, the Stratford Festival of Canada. And I've literally directed dozens of productions at both of those theaters. But in terms of Broadway, I think I've actually directed, maybe it's 15 shows now, which sounds a lot more human than the number you mentioned. So, 48, yeah, 48, 48 credits. Oh my God, you know, then I, I think I would have been dead by 1930. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you decide... What what you or I guess how you're involved versus you know, directing versus producing actively or producing from afar? How do you how do you decide all that? Sure, I mean the 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 Dodgers. Uh, I've done a lot of work with with uh, my colleagues as a, as a director, and uh, you know often it's something that I initiate uh, as a director. I I've had uh, the Kind of privilege of being involved in in most of the shows that I've directed pretty much from the get go, even when they're clean sheet, you know, musicals uh, or uh, uh, you know, you know, plays. Generally, I'm I'm involved at an early stage. Um, so with the productions, there may be another uh, director that's involved and that that's had the same uh, sort of pathway. And again, I'm, I'm always supportive of of uh, my my colleagues work but uh there are times when i'm i'm just i would be redundant i would be adjunct 
which I then I think the definition of adjunct or one of them is useless appendage. <laughs> so when, when I really have a, a creative role to play, then I, I like to, you know, step up to the plate. But if not, then I prefer to cheer from the sidelines. And you're, you're fine equal on an equal position or do you have one that you prefer over the other? You know, I'm, I'm a director and, and I, I also write and I, in fact, yeah, even believe it or not, I, I compose music. So th- those are my disciplines. You know, as a producer, I've, I've mainly been involved as an artistic director. So I was the artistic director of both La Jolla and Stratford. And, you know, you're working then with your colleagues, uh, with other directors, and you like to, you know, uh, support them as a kind of provider. You know, you're helping to provide resources. But when it comes to, um, you know, actual Broadway production, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not a numbers guy and I, I don't get heavily involved in the marketing campaign mm. and that sort of thing. So I, I'm, I'm definitely the guy that, I mean, a, a, fr- a friend of mine actually described this really perfectly well. I think a director is responsible for everything that happens, you know, on the stage and a producer is responsible for everything else. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty good description. So I'm definitely the director type. Right. Yeah. You like to, you like to be working with the cast. Yeah. And, and, with and the, you know, writers and, and composers and orchestrators and designers yeah. and all the, all of those disciplines, you know, the, those are, they're, they're all my partners. So. Right. Well, I want to back up to, to, your childhood and, and where you started. And I've got that you, you were born in, in Princeton, Illinois, yeah? Mm-hmm. So you're born in Princeton, but then do you, con- you consider yourself, you consider yourself Canadian because you live there for in, outside of Ontario for I, a while? I'm, I'm, I'm both. Yeah, I grew up in, in Ontario. I'm both. My, my father um, was, uh, uh, was actually a, 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 a pilot and uh, managed to, uh, survived the, the the war and uh, then uh, you know was educated in fact in Canada even though he was Irish and he uh, they my family moved to Princeton uh, and and he was actually killed in a car crash about six months before I was born oh. so uh, I I came to uh, that's the the American side of me so I'm half American. And then my mother uh, uh, took me back to Canada about six weeks after I was born with, I have an older brother. And so uh, I was raised there and I'm, uh, she uh, registered me as a birth abroad. So I have both uh, uh, citizenships and can, uh, that means I can pay taxes in both countries. Basically. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very much both, you know, I, I, I moved to, New York when I was in my early 20s and so most of my life I've spent in the United States but but there's a you know if I'm if I'm watching a, a hockey game and it's the US against Canada I I uh, I'm always uh, torn <laughs> uh, well, when did you when did you first start getting into performing? Were your were your family or your mother or anything were they all involved at all or did you, you kind of fall into this yourself? You know, um both my, my my mom remarried when when I was I guess about four five four I was and um, so my stepfather was a, a French horn player. She, she I guess I think my mother had a, a thing for Air Force guys because he'd also been in the RAF, <laughs> um, and he was a, a French horn player. 
but he did he didn't start playing horn until he was about 20 and for anyone who plays a brass instrument that's remarkably late so um he had a very difficult time he struggled with with you know with with control he did have quite nice tone but he loved music and my mother uh when i was uh, quite young uh was involved in amateur theater but they were both amateurs and they i think they had an appetite for the arts but uh, they had no uh you know a uh, uh, professional uh you know associations let alone experience and so i you know when i was uh, in in i started playing music first uh when i was uh, quite uh, young and then like almost everybody in those days i i started playing uh you know guitar and playing in bands in my teens and so i kind of backed into the theater through uh through music and uh that that's how I, I got started, and I did go to acting school at Ryerson University in Toronto, but I wasn't. Uh, I don't think I was frankly a very good actor. I was I was uh, I was not a good actor, and and I think you can argue that that's that can be an advantage as a director because uh, if you're a mediocre actor, you you do have to learn a craft and technique. You can't survive on talent. <laughs> so when it comes time to help others, hopefully you have some craft to pass on. Whereas some of the people I work with are so, uh, you know, ingenious as actors, they don't really have to work that hard at it. It just comes naturally to them. Mm. And that was certainly not the case for me. That's interesting that you said that. Yeah, I, I guess it makes a difference when, if you're if you are good at something and it comes naturally, and you're just telling somebody, oh, yeah, just do it like this, like I do it. Other people aren't like that. They don't have that natural talent. That's absolutely true. And and I think uh, somebody once pointed this out to me about uh, the old New York Yankees, the Yankees of the 70s. They had all those championship teams. And one of their managers, Billy Martin, had been you know on the team in the 50s. <clears throat> and he was probably, uh, he was probably not the best player on that team. He was at the other end, but he became a very good manager because he had to understand tactics and strategy as a player in order to compete with, you know, the great Mickey Mantle and the right. other people that he was playing with. And so I think there's, that's true. I think to some extent with, with, uh, directing that, that, uh, you, you definitely have to, uh, work, you know, intimately with actors and you, and you want to be able to, Help them by by passing on um, uh, perhaps uh, you know uh, some some uh, uh, you know craft, and at the same time you want to work with the most brilliant actors you can be in the same room with because that's obviously you're hitching your wagon to their to their star and and you ascend only when they do. Right. So you know I I think uh, while I wouldn't be looking for mediocre actors like me. To work with, I think the fact that I was one is probably probably comes in handy. <laughs> well, in in high school, you you wrote your own rock musical. Mm -hmm. Is it called Urbania? Urbania, right? Yeah, and that was performed by the high school drama club. What, what was that hard? A to write, and then B to get the school to say, "Oh yeah, we'll just throw some money at it." You know, I went to a really large high school. There were twenty three hundred students, and um, while I was not a theater arts student, 
I, I didn't, I, I had gotten to know the, the teacher that headed the program quite well. And I'd been in bands and the bands had played at the school. So, you know, I was definitely, um, you know, uh, uh, connected with the musicians in the school. And I was lucky enough to have classmates who were, in some cases, virtuosic. Um, and so I'd been playing and writing songs for some time before that came along. And, and the way I ended up writing that show is I, I hair came to town. And if you were a singer uh, in a band, it was just understood that you were going to audition for hair, like everyone did mm-hmm. over, over the city. And I made it to the last cut, which I think was 50, and there were 30-something in the cast. And I didn't make it into the, the company. And um, I think that gave me incentive. And, you know, I was, I was writing electric music and, you know, uh, so on. And I thought, you know, I think I, I could have a whack at this. So I went to my, uh, you know, friend, really, who's a teacher, and said, I'm going to write this musical over the summer. And if I do it, I think they were going to do MAME, you know, <laughs> as the school musical. I said, if I write a musical, will you have a look at it? And maybe you'll do my musical instead of MAME. And he said, yeah, sure, not believing that I would do it. And, of course, I showed up at the beginning of September with, you know, 25 songs and a script. And and um, I, I got to say, they those those uh, that faculty, you know, they, they literally... Um, I think changed my life because they were uh, courageous enough to get behind the show, which was somewhat controversial, had some controversial themes and uh, they backed me. I think it had a cast of 50. Wow. And it was actually supported by the student council. They actually put up the money uh, for, uh, for this musical. And I, it was, I definitely didn't know what I was doing, of course, but I had some moxie, and I had passion, and uh, I had support. So that that's how I that's how I got rolling. I, I, and, and after I did that, by the way, uh, it was just sort of understood that that's what I was going to do. I never made a decision that oh, I'm going to be a you know a, 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 a rock playwright or a, a director. It just once I I done that show, it was just I think everybody expected me to do that. So I just kind of kept stumbling forward <laughs> would you ever consider bringing it back now or was no, it absolutely not <laughs> under any circumstance we did record an album and you know recently on uh, uh ain't too proud the temptations musical uh we we performed in toronto and i keep in touch with a lot of the the people that i went to school with and um that's one of the great advantage advantages of course of the internet and so they all came to the show, and I, I threw a party for them. And so I, I've stayed in touch uh, all of those years. And and we uh, recorded this album, so some of them brought the album along. And my my cast of Ain't Too Proud, that they were sweet enough to come and hobnob <laughs> with my high school classmates. And uh, and I think they were greatly amused by this, this album with the a photograph of yours truly when I was like 18 looking, you know, very different than I look today. Of course, I think, I think my hair was halfway down my back. In those days. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty funny. So I, I, I would not under any circumstance, uh, produce it. Uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not embarrassed by it. I think it was, uh, 
precocious. Uh, as I say, it, it was a spectacular uh, band. In fact, a couple of the guys from that that group, uh, I think three of them went on. So I think it was a, a, a I think it was I think it was a, a, a band of eight. I think three of them went on to make their living, you know, as musicians. So it was it was not um, it was not completely embarrassing, but obviously it was naive. We were we were young and and uh, didn't have a, a you know a, had more instinct than than uh, than uh, craft. That's that's funny how it it. Uh, it progresses like that. I think if you had known how hard it was, you probably would not have done it. But you did it just thinking, oh yeah, I can do it. No one's told me that it's going to be hard or it's going to take up a whole summer or it's going to change my life. Yeah, and you know, I think that writing and composing, which which I continue to do, um, I think what happens is you, you spend a great deal of time on your own when you're a, a writer and a composer. And... Um, I think one of the reasons I got seduced by directing is that it's more social. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's that's actually gratifying and, in fact, really satisfying about directing is that you spend a lot of time with other people, you know, creating in groups, uh, uh, you know, forging partnerships. And um, that's both a wonderful thing. And, um, you know, it's also uh, a sad thing. I think I think I have great admiration for writers because I think at the end of the day it's it's a lonely uh, you know it can be a very lonely profession and so um, I had a, a, a mentor who was a playwright when I was in my early twenties and it was before I was really directing and he said to me uh, beware of directing and I said why and he said because it's more fun. <laughs> and if you start directing, it's going to take you away from from the desk. And you know what? He was right. That's fun. Yeah, I, I I'm a social person too. I don't I don't know how I could be alone. I mean, it's it's fun at the end of the day. Like sometimes I want some alone time, but like that's part of why I do this podcast is the human connection. Absolutely, and it's getting getting on stage and hearing the music and building this project all around you. Like I totally get that. I get the idea, um, but I want to I want to shift over to La Jolla, uh, which you took over in 1983. Right. Yeah. So you became artistic director in 1983 of La Jolla Playhouse, and what I was reading say you revived it. What state was it in when you took over? You know, there really was no theater, um, and it's it's a long, uh, circuitous story. So I I will you know clip me off. I'm not always great at sound bites and. Um, so it's, it's a sort of a, a, a long story, but uh, Gregory Peck had started the theater back in the late 40s, and it functioned up until 1964. Coincidentally, an old friend of mine who's gone now named Michael Langham had been brought in from Stratford, Canada, from the Stratford Festival to transform it, and Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire and Mel Ferrer, who had founded the the original Playhouse, uh, had become dissatisfied with the fact that it was kind of a a Summerstock Playhouse. And, you know, it was a high-level Summerstock Playhouse, but, you know, the resonant theater scene in America had been born by Mm -hmm. that point, and they wanted to do something more ambitious. And so Michael, my uh, uh, dear friend, 
ended up leaving Stratford and, and shut down the playoffs in 64 when I was, by the way, a child, I want to point out. And, <laughs> uh, so they stayed together trying to build this theater. And Michael ended up leaving and went to the Guthrie Theater in, in Minneapolis uh, to take that over. And the theater remained, the organization remained dormant for 20 years but they had some assets and they had a relationship with the University of California at San Diego. And they built a facility and went on a search for an artistic director. And I was working with my colleagues, the Dodgers uh, uh, here in New York. Dodgers are the production, your production, production company, company, not, not we the were, baseball team. And we were a not-for-profit theater, right? We were, we're, we're uh, I think we would have all loved to have played baseball, but yeah, we were a theater organization. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, I ended up uh, being offered this job and it was supposed to be only a summer operation. And I was, of course, completely naive and thought, oh, that's great. I'll do a few plays in the summer there. And of course, it completely took over my life. So the first season of the new theater uh, was 1983, and that's uh, you know that that's how the the, the playhouse uh, was reborn. And I, I think that my role in developing that theater that's that's and and many other people had roles too. I want to point out, including people in the community. You know, that's that's I, I consider my my most significant you know creative accomplishment because it it is a a really wonderful theater and Christopher Ashley is now the artistic director and mm-hmm. Michael Greif was a artistic director there uh, uh, as well. So, and the three of us now have this little cluster of shows in, in Midtown in New York, we all have Broadway shows there, all of, all of, all these uh, uh, playhouse guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal how, how I guess the reputation that comes with having started at the La Jolla Playhouse and uh, we uh, I interviewed Chris Ashley on this podcast at episode episode twenty, um, and yeah he was he was like well, I interviewed him he was in the middle of rehearsing Diana, oh yeah, um, but so many things started there and and have come here and are still running here like you're, one of your big claims is Jersey Boys mm-hmm. and yeah. that started when so that won best musical in twenty in two thousand six right yeah right I, I, and, I think that's right yeah, yeah. and. So when did it start in in La Jolla? And like, do, I guess in addition to that, at what point are you like, this is good enough to try to bring it across the country? You know, it, 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 there's no recipe for doing any theater piece. They're all different. They're all you know they they have they find unique pathways. And I I think the second you try to apply what you think you know from the past one to the next one, you get yourself in trouble. So they're they're all profoundly different. Uh, Jersey Boys, we started in, um, I believe, 2004 and ended up uh, going to uh, uh, to Broadway in 2005, just, you know, whatever it was, uh, the, the following season, mm-hmm. and then ended up winning the Tony that, that season in, in June of 2006. Um I think we had probably an inkling that Jersey Boys might have, uh, uh, you know, some uh, you know uh, some possibilities. Uh, I know that uh, at the very first preview, uh, we had people trying to buy tickets at intermission, 
So that was a pretty good sign. And uh, the box office was absolutely overwhelmed the following day. There are other times, like I did the Who's Tommy, Mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, some years before that. And uh, when we developed that in La Jolla, uh, I I, I don't remember anybody ever mentioning the the B word. Uh, We were up and running, extending it, you know, uh, before finally that subject came up. Uh, and so there was no thought when we did Tommy whatsoever initially of of, of doing it on Broadway. Hmm. So th- they're all different. And the thing I want to emphasize about La Jolla, though, is that while when you do a musical and it's successful, it does grab an awful lot of spotlight. But La Jolla uh, was well known in, I think, in the the, in the original decade, I think we the, of the top 10 uh, awards from the, the Village Voice, I th- the top 10 productions, I think three of them were for La Jolla Playhouse and none of them were for musicals. So, you know, musicals definitely are the flashiest mm-hmm. you know, uh, productions that we do, but they're not always the most important. And uh, La Jolla has a very... Uh, I think represents the the great kind of eclecticism of the American theater. And so the first production at La Jolla was The Visions of Simone Michard by Bertolt Brecht, directed by um, the uh, great American director Peter Sellers. Mm -hmm. So that's about as far away from, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, frankly, uh, uh, perhaps a, a Jersey Boys as you can get. So, you know... There, there, there was a really a broad spectrum of, of productions at La Jolla. And I'm very, very proud of the musicals. Chris Ashley told me recently that I think 32 productions, Broadway productions, have started in La Jolla. And given that we only started in an 83, and most of the time we only did three plays a year, that's, a, that's our three or four plays a year, that, that's a pretty high... Uh, you know that that that's a high batting average. Yeah, that's huge. And so you you were you were at the helm for twenty four years before Chris Ashley took over. Uh, well, Michael Greif did had had a term in there too. So so there've been basically and a, a director named a, 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 an artistic director named uh, uh, Ann uh, Hamburger was there for a, a, a spell too. She was there for for a, a season. But so there's been three of us, and I think I. Uh, was artistic director over 18 seasons, but I was there in two different stints. Mm. So I had two separate tenures. Uh, when um, uh, Annie left, I, I came back for six or seven more years and then uh, passed the baton to Chris Ashley. And, uh, you know, the great thing about uh, we're actually all friends, which is a kind of a remarkable thing. O- often when you leave a theater as artistic director, you are banished, you know, and you are not kind of welcome. Maybe they'll invite you to some dinner, you know, 10 years later. But but a lot of times I find with theaters that there's this wall that goes up when the artistic director um, kind of moves on. And that has not been the case at La Jolla. I've got to say that there is a real camaraderie. And, and I think that makes it a very welcoming sandbox to other playwrights and directors. I think people really love going there uh, because it is, uh, it's a very safe environment. 
Yeah. And it's a safe environment where one can take risks. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's it's really uh, I guess forgive me for using the term Broadway light. There's so much talent and so much creativity, but without the 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 baggage and the spotlight that comes with being on Broadway, so you can really kind of sink your teeth into what makes something good or not good and decide where it wants to go. But um, no, I think that's true. I think I think generally the commercial the halls of commerce it, that that's where you want to go after you've vetted your piece uh, uh, while you know there has been experimentation on Broadway over the years most of the time it's the end of the experimental process so you want to go to in a sense uh, you know you want to take something to Broadway to open the gift you you don't necessarily want to yeah. you know uh, you know create the gift uh, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of eyes on you when you're when you're doing a show on Broadway. So it it tends to be, you know, it's the beginning of something else, but it's the end of a certain part of the creative process. Mm-hmm. I, I think a real, uh, and you can ask any director this, and I'm, I'm I'm sure you have and will. You know, there's nothing more nightmarish than being in production on Broadway, uh, throwing numbers out and putting new numbers in. It is, it is really, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great challenge to be performing at all in New York. But if you're, if you're actually continuing to develop a show in a rigorous fashion, uh, there are a lot of sleepless nights. And so, um, yeah, you want to try to kind of come here feeling pretty secure about what you have. And then you can still get blown out of the sky like a, yeah. you know, a dirigible with a cruise missile aimed at. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why did you decide then to to leave and to move on? I mean, okay, so 24 years beginning to end from first stint to end of second stint. What? Why, why leave it? You know, I I I've, I left a couple of times. So you know, uh, I, first of all, I think I think Chris has been at Lloyd more than a decade now, and and he's it's still going strong. But I think I think there is a sort of uh, this is pr- probably an unfortunate term, but there's maybe a little bit of a shelf life, and and you want to be kind of fresh, and you want to maintain your spirit of adventure when you run a theater, and. Uh, there's probably a time when it is kind of healthy to move on. I think uh, my dear colleague, and I admire him greatly, Michael Greif, he stayed five years, I think, and or five or six years. And, you know, that was right for him. You know, that's that that's that's how long he had to give. And that was, he, he then moved on and he's done extraordinary things. I think he's been, his name has been attached to two Pulitzer Prize winning uh, 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 musicals since then. Uh, so I think you have to, um, you know, you have to follow your spirit. And I, while I loved running La Jolla, uh, it, and it's very important to me, it's not the only thing in my life. So after La Jolla, when I left uh, uh, in 07, uh, I went to Stratford, Canada, which was close to where I'd grown up. And that was a chance to run. What, which I what I guess is argue I think it is in fact the largest uh, theatrical institution in the world. I believe it's somewhat larger than the Royal Shakespeare Company. Hmm. So that was a different kind of opportunity where I could do the plays of William Shakespeare and other great classics and work on. You know, I think there were 
uh, 120 actors in the acting company one year when I was there. It's a repertory theater. So that was a very different kind of experience from, from La Jolla. And I'm, I'm very glad I, I got the, the uh, opportunity to do that. That was, that was really a, a, a great privilege. Yeah. I, shifting gears a little bit, you made your Broadway debut in 1982 with Pump Boys and Dinettes. No, I, I got this is I'm sorry. And this is the the problem with 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 this day and age that we live in and and electronic information. So Pump Boys and Dinettes was um, a, a Dodger production. It was actually, I believe, the first uh, commercial Dodger production before that uh, Dodgers had been a not for profit company. We started at the Brooklyn Academy. We were in resonance for Joseph Papp at the Public Theater, and I did several plays there uh, for Dodgers. But I did not direct Pump Boys. And while, again, I was a friend of the court, and uh, I might have given notes uh, on Pump Boys, but I, I was not the director. And and my, my name appears on the Dodger biography because it lists the founding members. And so anytime a Dodger production happens, I'm credited uh, uh, for something that uh, generally I have not done, which is to produce the show. So, so I was around for Pump Boys, but by that point, I was, I was already pretty much in La Jolla getting ready for the 83 season. Well, that, I guess that kind of sets, it, it was a setup for my question, uh, which actually makes my question a little bit more poignant now, because the second Broadway credit then is was Big River. Yeah. And that's where you made your directorial debut. Right. And that got you a Tony win. So yeah. your so your actual first production where you actually directed got you a Tony award. Right. Ridiculous, <clears throat> right? And so my question then was going to be that because you got the Tony so early in your career, did you have did you form any sort of conception of the industry of like well, everything I do now is going to, you know, like turn into gold. I'll have the Midas touch. Absolutely not. <laughs> really? Uh, I, I did not. No, I, actually, uh, Big River had a lot of, of, there were a lot of us that it, where it was, our, our, it was our, our first Broadway show. So uh, Heidi Ettinger, who won uh, the, the, the uh, Tony for uh, Best Scenic Design, and Bill Houtman, the writer, you know, there, uh, uh, there were a number of people that, that uh, where it was a, a Broadway debut. <clears throat> and... Um, there were fewer Broadway shows in those days, and I want to point out too. I, I uh, for what it's for what little it's worth, I had been directing in New York for a long time. By the time I did Big River, I, I my first uh, uh, production in in New York was almost ten years before that, and I had directed, for example, Henry the Fourth. Uh, in the park for Joseph Papp, I directed a number of productions at the Public Theater, uh, uh, productions at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, you know, so I, I was sort of an active player in New York. That uh, and and at that time, there you know, I think there were only probably six new. We could check this, but new Broadway musicals that season. So there, while there was an awful lot of theatrical activity in New York. Uh, Broadway was not nearly as robust as it is today. So, and I, I certainly didn't take it for granted. I was, uh, you know, the fact that we got that kind of recognition and, and uh, we ran, that show ran for, I think we ran into our third season. 
So, um, you know, we realized that we were blessed. And uh, so I, I've never, uh, I've never, uh, I, you, you know, you learn very quickly to take nothing for granted when you work in the theater. Uh, and you, you're in love with all of your work. The fact that perhaps those that write about the theater may have different opinions about, you know, different productions. It doesn't necessarily mean they're less important to you. Um, you know, you, you have to have love and passion and belief in the work you do, or, you know, you're, you're, I, I think you're, you know, the, the, that kind of insincerity, uh, you know, you, you can't be a mercenary, I think, as an artist, you, you have to work from your heart. And so I certainly was uh, thrilled, uh, you know, Big River was, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a great success, but uh, I didn't for one second think, oh, well, you know, I'll just do this, you know, every season. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I knew it was going to be climbing Everest each time. I'll prepare my next speech as soon as I'm done with <laughs> that's this That's right. One. That's right. No, no, I, absolutely, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, you're, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, and, and you don't determine, of course, necessarily what's a success. There are a lot of voices that go into figuring out what, you know, what's what's going to catch on. And it's always a mystery. You know, you're never, you know, people say, well, how come how come that show's successful? And you, you, if you're being honest with yourself, you have to say, well, I, I really have no idea. And um, if, if I did, I would just do it again exactly that way and, and have it repeat. So... It's, it's always a little bit of a mystery. You know, you get a bunch of people in a room and they decide they love something and, and who knows why. It's, it's this same sort of strange kind of mystical experience. Yeah. It's interesting to me, uh, these stories. There's kind of a through line that I've, that I've pulled out of talking to many creatives now on this podcast is, is that I would have assumed that there's a formula. And what I've, what I've learned is it, it just it's not there. It's just... You're a talented person connected with other talented people that maybe have a good idea that then resonates with an audience at a particular time. And so that's kind of the box office side of it, a side of it, but the the creative side, especially um Tom Kitt said this to me recently that um, he, he next to normal, got written because they had a bunch of songs and they're like, oh, well, let's just put a story in the middle of all the songs. And then all of a sudden, like they spit out this great play, this great musical. And then there's other things he's done where he's been given a script and like have to write music on top of it. And so it's, it's really interesting to me. It's fascinating, you know, from your side, from your point of view, just how many different ways there are to be successful. And what the common through line there is, a common through line is there for you is that you are the common through line. You're you're helping shepherd the decisions and the people and make it all successful. Yeah, and, and you're part of a creative family, and and you're only as strong as your collaborators. I mean, the theater, uh, which can be anarchic and uh, and very unpredictable. Uh, the the one thing that uh, virtually all shows have in common is that they are collaborations. And mm -hmm. I think the line in Merrily, the Sondheim line is, or uh, the, the, the line is, you know, uh, uh, from the book is, uh, uh, I, I collaborate you and you collaborate me. And uh, I, I think that's, that, that's probably a, a right on point, you know, that the collaborations are not always easy. They can be, <clears throat> um, 
you know, they, they can be acrobatic. Um, but, you know, you, you do need a group of people. And I think when you, if you fool yourself into thinking that, you you know, you, you've, you've got a sort of a, a set of, you know, techniques or principles that's going to apply to the next show, then um, you're, 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 you're probably on a, a, a disastrous course. I think craft is very important. And, and developing skill really is important, but it's often most applicable when you're not inventing craft, when you're not discovering something. And so maybe you have something you can fall back on uh, in those long silences where no, nobody knows what to say in rehearsal. So maybe you can draw on some experience or something that somebody's told you. But most of the time, you want to be kind of inventing um, and, and, and you want to be in touch with your heart. Uh, I think, uh, I, I think it's not, uh, I, I think, I think what you said is absolutely true. There is no formula and, um, you know, you want to obviously embrace principles and, uh, and knowledge is obviously something that, uh, you need to, um, you know, to, to build on, but it, it doesn't necessarily give you a it's not going to give you a blueprint mm-hmm. for the show. That's something you have to invent with with your partners. Right. On the other hand, to just completely contradict that too, <laughs> with musicals, it is interesting that sometimes it does require somebody to kind of see it. You know, somebody has to see it, and then I mean the audience or no, like no. A I think a creator. In other words, it could be a book writer, it can be a composer. I think it's very rarely a producer. I think there was a time when maybe, you know, in the days of David Merrick and so on, maybe that was more common. I, th- I think uh, I think most of the time it's a, a, a writer, a director, uh, you know, but somebody for a theater piece, I think, often has to have a glimpse, like a, a some sort of mirage or, you know, kind of vision. And then, and then, you know, everybody kind of gets together and figures out how to, make those seeds grow into something, you know, remarkable. Um, but it, it definitely, you know, has to do with partnerships. And that's what makes it, uh, you know, sometimes turbulent and, and, and always unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about Ain't Too Proud. There's so many other questions that I have to skip over because I want to get to Ain't Too Proud. One of my favorite shows of this season. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Tell me, tell me how you got involved. How did you decide to to bring this to, to bring this particular story to Broadway? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ira Pittleman and Tom Hulse, uh, our producers on T- Ain't Too Proud, uh, asked to meet with me, and uh, told me they had, uh, you know, they'd acquired some some rights, uh, and had, I guess, some sort of understanding with the the rights holders of. Uh, of uh, this, you know, of the songs of the Temptations and Motown and Mr. Gordy and all the people that were involved, um, <clears throat> um, uh, and and uh, I, uh, I I told them that I I didn't know very much about the Temptations, and you know they knew that I'd had a success with an earlier show. I, I've actually done three so-called jukebox shows and 
the, and uh, and Ain't Too Proud is the third of them. So I've Donna done Summer was the most recent. Yeah, one. and so I've done three, yeah. including Summer. Yeah, three altogether. But even so, because you know, I, 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 it's not necessarily again going back to there's no formula. Uh, I, I was not necessarily oh, you know, uh, yay! Here comes another show where I've got all these great songs. You know, it's it's really intimidating to do any piece of theater, and I wasn't. You know, you, it's a it's a, a, a steep mountain every time you start to climb one, and so it wasn't you know, something that I immediately jumped at. I, I didn't know very much about the story. So we we had, I, I did some research and read uh, this wonderful book by by Otis Williams and read other articles and, and got to know something about the temps. And then um, met with Otis Williams. Really? And Shelley Berger. And we had lunch and... Uh, uh, it was just uh, exhilarating to meet him. For, first of all, he's he's a wonderful man with a huge heart, uh, as you would expect. And I knew enough about him by that point, and enough about the temptations that I could ask some questions. And it became obvious that he was intent on telling a truthful version of the story of the temptations. And that was very enticing to me. Uh, first of all, I love the music. I, I know this sounds really unlikely, but I actually was in an R&B band <laughs> once upon a time called The Sound Explosion. And I still, you know, play guitar. So uh, uh, I could, I think, croak out a version of... Uh, of my girl now, and I, I could still play the guitar part. So I knew the music uh, pretty well, having performed it as a, as a teenager, and loved The Temptations, of course, as, as uh, well, everyone I knew loved The Temptations. But um, it was his, I think, determination to tell this story, to have his sto story told, that that I really uh, uh, kind of went for, and and he 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 asked me to do that to do the show at, at that meeting. He said, "I want you to do this." <laughs> and um, when Otis Williams of the Temptations asks you to, you know, to to do a show, uh, you know, it's hard to say no. And and he's also six foot five. So I wasn't going to argue. With him. <laughs> <laughs> he's a lot. He's a lot. He's a lot taller than I am. When? What and year was that? When was that? That would have been two. That would have been two thousand and fourteen. And the only writer that we ever talked about or considered for uh, "Ain't Too Proud" was uh, uh, Dominique Morisot. She was just absolutely the obvious person. And again, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, which is, um, you know, quite close to New York, uh, to Detroit. And we, you know, went back and forth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, between those two cities. And we loved the, obviously, the music scene in Detroit. And um, so the fact that Dominique hails from Detroit, Michigan, was, uh, uh, you know, an obvious calling card for her. And she's very knowledgeable about not only the city, but the 
the whole Motown culture. So we started, we met in March um, of 15 and started working together that summer. And uh, we spent uh, a lot of time together. Uh, I, I said to her at one point, I, maybe we should spend a little time together, you know, uh, just talking about an outline. <clears throat> and I think she thought we were going to spend a few hours in an afternoon doing this. And I think it was something like 10 full days <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> listening to music and so on. And, you know, when you're working on a new musical, you know, Somebody once said musicals are, are are not written; they're they're talked into existence, and I think there's some real truth to that. That that it is a and it's very uh, seductive because it is social. You know, you spend a lot of time together, kind of dreaming and bouncing ideas around. And so uh, after we we did that work, Dominique went off and started. Uh, you know, hammering out a script and, and, you know, we, but, but, uh, we, we, we knew each other really well before I think the musical started to take flight. We, we got to know each other well. And, and, uh, um, so it, it was really a, a, a fantastic, uh, you know, evolution and it, it's continued through to this day to be a really gratifying experience. Such an, an energetic show. And then the cast, I mean, the cast itself, it got lots of Tonys, Tony nominations. And, I mean, when when you're casting, you're, you found, did you have the the say in, like, casting Derek and Jeremy Pope and Ephraim Sykes? And these guys are just phenomenal, and they embody these characters so well. I mean, do, do, you, do you know what you're looking for when, when you start the casting, or are you just, you're waiting for, you know, someone to come in and that just clicks? Gee, that, that's, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I think it's probably a combination of both those things. Um, you're waiting to be awakened by some great talent. And uh, you, you, so you don't necessarily have, you know, a, 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 a prescription of, of what the actor is going to be. On the other hand, by the time you're casting, you've spent a lot of time developing the musical, you know, in the writing process, you know, we obviously, in this case, we had a score written largely by two of the great songwriters of the 20th century, Smokey Robinson and Norman Whitfield. So we, we had the architecture of the musical. Um, and, you know, when you're directing a musical, it's, it's probably the most important decision you're going to make, uh, you know, as a director, uh, casting is the, is, is, you know, I'm sure, I, I, I think it's probably 90% of your job. You know, if, if you have people that aren't well cast, I don't care how good you think you are, you're not going to be able to, you know, fulfill the promise of the show. You, mm -hmm. you need the team, you know, you need wonderful people. And as director, I think on a musical, as with film, your two chief responsibilities are story and and performance, and so in order to you know fulfill those responsibilities, you you have to put people together in, in, for the whole team. That includes designers and everybody, but it's particularly true of the of the performers. You know, at the end of the day, the theater belongs to the actor, and it's been that way since in in certainly. 
uh, you know, Western culture since the time of, of the, the Greek classical age. You know, <laughs> it always belongs to the actor. And so um, we spent a lot of time casting. We worked with Tara Rubin, uh, who's a wonderful casting director. And people, I think, sometimes misunderstand that. A casting director is really just a fabulous facilitator. So they gather the people together, but as as the you know director and choreographer, you ultimately and music director, you need to make those choices. And of course, Dominique was uh, involved in in the casting process, as were the producers. So you you have uh, what we refer to as the big table. There are a lot of people sitting there, and you need to um, you know come to an agreement. At the end of the day, it's. The, the, the ultimate decision is the director's decision. So I think when there's a disagreement, and there rarely is, then generally people acknowledge that the director, uh, you know, it's it's your head in the guillotine. So mm-hmm. ultimately you have to make the final call. And uh, with this musical, it's been joyous. You know, we, we've had so many uh, great choices. You know, Sergio Trujillo, our choreographer, tells this story of of being in the final dance call and we had 30 actors and we have basically you know half that number of opportunities and uh we just sat there together looking at these extraordinary talents thinking oh my god we could cast this show twice and um so we're 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 very lucky, and and uh, and uh, it's it's. I think the show would not exist without the performances. That that's for certain. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I I hope Ephraim came in and did his jumps jump split during the audition. That's that's what I picture in my head. So don't spoil that for me. We saw that we saw <laughs> Ephraim in Los Angeles. So we'd finished the auditions here, and we all went uh, west, and uh, he. Uh, he absolutely, he hit a Grand Slam home run at the play. He was just brilliant. And he does that every performance. He channels yeah. David Ruffin. Yeah. And Ephraim's a very articulate, kind of a, almost a musical historian, very, very smart guy. He's an Ailey dancer, so he's a terrific, he's a thoroughbred as a dancer. You know, he's he, he, he grew up dancing, and he is... A brilliant craft, but the thing that's and he's actually a, has a very uh, warm uh, personality. He's very low key. He's extremely modest. Uh, yet somehow, when he plays that part, he channels David Ruffin, and I swear, David Ruffin's spirit embodies Ephraim Sykes and it's really something to behold. And I'll, I'll tell you a little secret about Ephraim and, um, um, Ephraim is David Ruffin. And there is a moment though, sometimes that I can see at the end of a number, just, just a moment where there's this little smile that flashes across Ephraim's face, and I just catch a glimpse of Ephraim. Other than that, he has disappeared into the performance. So <laughs> he, he is really, and I tell you, he gets a lot of credit for 
uh, for what he does on stage. He he gets the the lion share of the credit. Sergio's help. Dominique's play obviously is paramount. Kenny Seymour, a music director, and the great Harold Wheeler, who did the orchestrations, uh, he owes them something, but most of it's Ephraim. That's incredible. So we are at time here. And I want to I want to wrap this up with the three standard questions that I ask every guest on the podcast. Uh-oh. First question, very simply, what sure. motivates you? What motivates me? I love what I do. And it is really an honor to get to work with great talent. And that gets me up in the morning, uh, particularly the actors. And I love all of the talented people I get to work with. But I think an actor is someone who is trapped inside their instrument. So it's not like if you have a child that's or a friend that's a violinist, you can say, stop playing that passage, put the violin down, I've, I've made this fabulous dinner, come and enjoy dinner. That actor can never put down that instrument. They're, they're inside it, it's them. And that's a really fascinating artist to get to spend time with. So that 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 really, I think, is what mo- motivates me to do theater more than anything else. I've never heard that analogy before at all, and I think it is dead accurate. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, I love that. Okay, so next question. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? You know, that's a really easy question to answer because I have very, very little advice to give. <laughs> you have to find your own a journey. You have to go on your own journey. And, and, but I can be of, I think I can be of marginal help, help by saying one thing. If you're going to go into the theater and, you know, it's important if you go to a drama school to have professors, to have people that can impart wisdom to you and that can teach you about the, you know, the history of theater and, and, and take you through acting class and, and so on, teaching music and so on. All that's important. Maybe people that can inspire you, important. But the most important thing is that you have to find your peers. You have to find, if you're an actor, you have to find a director or a playwright or a designer. You have to find, we, have, we do this together. This is a collaboration. You have to find your peers. So my advice would be find your people. The people that you start working with now, maybe you'll still be working with them in 40 years. That's certainly been true for me. Uh, But so you need to find your people. Great. Okay, last question. This is the hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what show would you see? Uh, you know, I, I would if I, I would hate that would be torture uh, for me uh, to deny myself uh, the wonders of uh, you know the, the you know the, the the sort of great history of, of dramatic literature. I would really hate that. I I I, I suppose I would uh, not. I would refuse to answer that with one play, but I I would be able to answer it with one playwright, and that would be William Shakespeare. And I feel very strongly that William Shakespeare belongs to all of us. 
to everyone, mm-hmm. to everyone on the planet. Uh, if you were talking about trying to name the, you know, the 10 greatest compositions, you probably have 10 different composers, 10 greatest paintings. You know, you couldn't leave off Picasso, uh, you know, or Titian or, and so on. But with, with plays, if, if, and a friend of mine pointed this out to me, if you were naming the 10 greatest plays, Mm -hmm. I would think at least five of them would be by William Shakespeare and maybe even more. So I would hate to choose Hamlet over As You Like It, uh, over King Lear, over Richard III, over The Tempest. But if you said you could only have one kind of experience over and over again in the theater, it would be uh, uh, to get to experience the plays of William Shakespeare. That is a beautiful answer. All right. So... Of course, everyone should visit ain'ttooproudmusical.com to get more information on Ain't Too Proud and get your tickets. And then are you on social media? Do you do social at all? Do I? Yeah. Absolutely not. No, no, no. <laughs> you can find me. I'm, I'm generally wandering around somewhere between 46th and 43rd Street these days. And I'm the sort of haggard-looking uh, uh, a guy that's, uh, that's, that's wandering around those blocks. But no, I, I don't do social media uh, at, at all. I... I uh, I love the social part of what I do, but I also like my privacy. Wonderful. Okay, you can get more of me and The Theater Podcast at thetheaterpodcast.com. You can support us slash Patreon. You can get more of me on Instagram and Twitter, theater underscore podcast on Facebook slash official theater podcast. Rate, review, share with your friends, leave a review. We read all of those. It's wonderful. This is produced by Jillian Hockman, edited by Matthew Hendershot. And of course, thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for intro and outro music. That's Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.